Oh, a life of adventure is gay and free, and danger has its charm. And no pig of spirit will bound his life by the fence of his master's farm. Yet there's no true pig but heaves a sigh at the pleasant thought of the old home sky. In the past, it has occurred to me that I've overstepped my bounds in this regard, and so in true Truman Show fashion, I'm going to say good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Welcome to our podcast. I am one of your hosts, Josiah Willits, and this is Freddy Goes to a Podcast. I'm, I'm another host. I'm, I'm Michael Lilienthal, and thank, thank you for uh, covering all your bases there, Josiah. It's it's important that we don't alienate any of our listeners. Well, in the past, you guys got on me for making assumptions. <laughs> it's so. true. Yeah, and you know what happens when you make assumptions. Hi, I'm your third host, Ethan Bartlett, and I don't want us to make anything out of our assumptions. <laughs> Great. Well, it is right. a series about farm animals, so it fits right in. <laughs> Yes, indeed. It is a series about Freddy and his friends on the Bean Farm. The book series is written it, a long time ago. Is it on an what? animal farm? On Bean's Farm. Bean's don't, Animal don't Farm? Us. Don't get ahead of us now, Ethan. <laughs> yeah. All right. I see. Great. Um, so, um, for this week, well, for this podcast, we don't typically go by weeks as you might have been able to tell um it's in sometimes we go by sometimes we go by months sometimes we go by you know like an entire year so i mean <laughs> whatever whatever we have you we are vast oh. we contain multitudes scheduling multitudes <laughs> scheduling multitudes in any case for this podcast we are looking at freddie the politician mm. yes um, mm-hmm. which my edition points out was originally published under the much better title, Wiggins for President. Yes. That was the original title? Wiggins yeah, for President. Oh, that's so much better. Yes. I, if I ever find a, a poster or a, literally anything of any kind that says Wiggins for President under it, on it, I will pay at least three figures for that. <laughs> Wait, does I don't those know figures what I'll do include decimal oh, points? Man. I am going to go and get my markers and a poster board right now. <laughs> no, it has to Easiest $100 ever. Yeah, you're right. I should have specified no, before committing. It's on yeah. the podcast, Ethan. Yeah, I did commit myself, I admit. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I will be bound by that. I will pay you $100 for your markered uh, Wiggins for President poster board. <laughs> All right. I'll get one of my so children to draw a picture and then I'll write on it and sell you that for $100. <laughs> Very nice. All right. Well, let's start with Ethan's portion. Ethan, your nostalgia portion, where you tell us about how this book was part of your childhood or not um, part of your childhood. That is a really great question, Josiah, or a really great. I mean, it was an implied question, and I'm going to go with it as a question. I don't know if this book was part of my childhood. I feel like I read it, but if I did, unlike 
say Freddy the Detective or even Freddy Goes to Florida. I only read it like one to two times rather than 12 to 75 times. Um, so I'm struggling to recall anything specific about this book. Uh, however, I do feel that this book did sort of contribute to my early like radicalization um, because <laughs> I do feel that this book was sort of in a tradition with like John Steinbeck and um, you know some other writers of the, the 30s and 40s in sort of uh, promulgating socialism at a time when communism <laughs> was like a pretty pretty you know anathema enemy of the US state mm -hmm. um, and I say that partly because this book you know really promotes the idea that like animals if you let them talk if you let them have language if you let them have human style language they will eventually create a currency and use that currency to undermine the u.s state um <laughs> and and so like I don't know that I that I feel nostalgia about like oh you know the the talking animals did a cute little presidential run but like I do feel nostalgia in the sense of like before this book the idea that non-human creatures could sort of subvert the established order both economically and governmentally mm -hmm. of both the United States and sort of the world at large like it was an innocent time before 1939 um, when we thought that this was impossible. And this book showed us that that was not only possible, but inevitable if we allowed animals to have the gift of um, human speech. And I'm not saying that I was, I'm for or against that. Um, I do think Walter R. Brooks may have been a Freemason. Um <laughs> But as we all know, Freemasons have, you know, greatly contributed to uh, American culture and society. Most of our presidents what have, have we been done? Freemasons. <laughs> what do oh. we do to make you do this, Ethan? <laughs> well, it's because, like, Why? the Freemasons, in their own sort of lore and, and legend, they draw their own heritage back to the Knights Templar. And the Knights Templar, of course, were the creators of the first banks. So I think there's a direct line, <laughs> a direct, a direct line that we can draw from the Knights Templar, the the protectors of the Crusaders, through the later formation of the Freemasons to Walter R. Brooks and his formulation of an alternative economy uh, created by talking animals in upstate New York, um, to again sort of subvert and problematize the the elitism of the American banking system and indeed the American like cultural milieu of the time. Um, so I, I, I hope I'm really, I really hope I'm not like stepping on Michael's toes as like the history guy, but like, this is, yeah. this is the nostalgia that I feel for this book is like <laughs> of in, in a very early and like very sort of nascent fashion as a 12 year old being radicalized into sort of a a non-marxist non-communist but nevertheless socialist sort of milieu and you this made is, all of that up this <laughs> has been ethan's oh no 
<laughs> I'm not saying I can prove it or that it is objectively true, but I did not make most of it up. <laughs> because, okay, because some of that, some of that actually, I feel like we could actually use for talking about later. Sure. Some of that, man. <laughs> I, I, uh, uh, I mean, uh, man. you know, I don't, I don't want to sort of impose my views on anybody i want everybody to sort of sort out uh from what i have said what they believe or don't believe um i am merely a, a provocateur is... or a spur to greater thinking uh, <laughs> and if any students want to sort of ascend the mountain on which i am um you know on top of which i live in a cave and dispense wisdom like that is that is an effort that you must make Yeah. So this has been Ethan's yeah. Nostalgia Corner. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> so so you've never read the book before, is what you're saying. <laughs> uh, no, I have read it at least three times. Oh, I, okay. I read it at least once in my childhood to become radicalized as a socialist. Mm -hmm. I read it one time several months ago, and I reread... Admittedly, parts of it, but uh, reread it today in preparation for this podcast. Very good. Um, All right. I also read the later edition of this book that has George Orwell's name on it, but that's a whole thing I don't want to get into. <laughs> don't worry, I will. <laughs> I'm okay. sure that that is something that Michael is going to go into with the history. Yes. Well, why don't you go ahead and take it away, Michael? <laughs> All right. Well, as as noted, Freddy the Politician was originally published as Wiggins for President in 1939, <laughs> and we can all agree that's much better title. Yes, um, this was two years after the uh, previous volume in the Freddy the Pig se series, Freddy and the Clockwork Twin, being in 1937. So in 1939, uh, Ethan, you mentioned John Steinbeck, and Grapes of Wrath was published in April of 1939. Uh, also in 1939, Batman was introduced to the public in May. Uh, in July of speaking 1939. Of, yep. Speak, speaking of uh, people who sort of formulate an alternate legal or justice system, sort of subverting <laughs> the American system, Batman the Vigilante. Batman, exactly. Um, and in July, Teddy Roosevelt's face was revealed at Mount Rushmore. And in August, the film version of The Wizard of Oz premiered. I think we've been kind of dancing around uh, The Wizard of Oz, and this is the year. Uh, and then, of course, September 1st, 1939, Hitler invaded Poland, kicking off World War II. Um, so when the Beans went to have their summer vacation in Europe, they are sure to face some tension. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> yep. Um, so in this uh, historical background section, I always share who the president is at the time of the book's publication, but given the subject matter of this book, uh, it warrants a little more detail. So 1940 is the official beginning of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's third term as president, but during 1939, he would have been racing against Wendell Wilkie, uh, mm. even though almost right up to that year of 1939, he'd been assuring people he would not run for a third term. But um, it's it said apparently that the stirrings of Hitler and the Nazis caused such a concern for FDR that he felt that he was the only one with the experience and the knowledge of modern times necessary to keep the U.S. safe and strong 
during such a turbulent time in the conflict. So he decided to run for a third and then later a fourth term. Um, so as, as the original title of the book indicates, Wiggins for President, the, one of the key features is the push for the cow, Mrs. Wiggins, to be elected president of the first animal republic. We'll talk more about that in the summary. But this relates to uh, some other history that the first woman elected to public federal office in the U.S. was Jeanette Rankin, who was in the House of Representatives representing Montana from 1917 to 1919. And now I want you to notice there that her term ended one year before she could vote. (laughs) Yes. Um, And then she was elected to the House again in 1941. So kind of leapfrogging uh, this uh, book's publication a little bit. Um, I, I don't remember exactly who, but one of our listeners said that she was interested to know what we might say about Animal Farm once we got to this book. And we've been talking about that one just in obscure terms, but I also did read that book immediately after finishing Freddy the Politician. Um, and I have some thoughts that I'm just going to dump here, and we can talk sure. more about it as we go too. But Animal Farm was published seven years after... Freddy the Politician in 1946. So these two books border the Second World War almost perfectly. Um, Animal Farm hit the bookshelves the same week as atomic bombs hit Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, And there are some similarities between the books. Uh, For example, the the pigs that sing songs, farm animals that have official meetings in barns and start a government, animals that can talk to humans, cats uh, that are never where you want them to be. Uh, I don't know whether George Orwell was aware of the Freddy the Pig series or, uh, on the other side of things, whether Walter R. Brooks knew of Orwell. Uh, maybe we'll revisit that when we come to, um, like, Freddy the Pied Piper was published the same year as Animal Farm. See if there are any uh, connections there, and, and later books as well. Um, I think there are, there are other politically-themed um, books as well in the Freddy yeah, the Pig we've series. Got, we've got Simon the Dictator yeah. coming at a certain point, yeah. don't we? <laughs> Yep, yep. So that'll be interesting to look at. Um, Now, these two books, uh, Freddy the Politician and Animal Farm, are from different continents. Um, But I can definitely imagine at least a a readership connection. I could see an 11-year-old reading Freddy the Politician, or Wiggins for President, and then living through World War II only to come as an 18-year-old to Animal Farm, uh, appreciating the grown-up version of a farm of talking animals with their own government. Um, a lot of growing up would have happened in those years, I'm sure. Uh, and a reader of both books might then appreciate some of the parallels between the Russian communist leaders depicted uh, in the Pigs of Animal Farm after the perhaps more Hitlerian totalitarianism of the woodpeckers in Freddy the Politician. Um, but that's enough editorializing from me. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, the was president say... was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. There you go. I was, I was, I was going to say, like, the the impression I got reading Animal Farm, you know, in either late high school or early college was like from critical assessments and stuff was that Animal Farm was sort of based on a genre or subgenre of mm-hmm. like children's literature, like talking animal literature. Um, and I never, even though I was watching for it because I had background in in you know the Freddy books. I never encountered anything that like drew the direct connection between Freddie the Politician, mm. Wiggins for President, and yep. Animal Farm. But it's like this. I mean, you know, Freddie the Politician uh, was like a, a popular book series. Like it would have been known right. 
to people who read and like British and American readership, while they weren't identical, were like had a ton of overlap. Like, the, oh, certainly, the two Venn diagram circles were much closer to being circles than they were to being like distinct hemispheres. Um, mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, in our in in a uh, Michael's and my other book podcast, um, we mm-hmm. sometimes like assign theoretical grad students like. a a paper like a term paper or even a thesis paper to do and like drawing both the historical and the literary connections between animal farm and freddy the politician whether those are like more coincidental or more direct like would just be a really interesting project i feel like Mm -hmm. yeah like i don't you know i don't i don't know anything beyond that i haven't done the research or anything but like it it feels like there's a paper there that could be written one way or the other. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether it would be mm-hmm. drawing in context that both of these books are drawing on or making the argument that there's a connection between them. But frankly, either way would be really fascinating. Right. Well, and I mean, the thing about Animal Farm is that you're you're right. Orwell does adopt this kind of section of literature of like children's literature dealing with talking animals and harnesses it to unveil the history that has taken place right mm-hmm. and in and in a way that's you know at the same time accessible and frightening right that mm-hmm. yeah it it's, it's almost yeah. like i sometimes like to try to draw modern parallels to these things and they sometimes don't work but um to me it feels like if you you know the the as millennials the film we're very familiar with babe it's like mm-hmm. if someone had like 20 years later done a remake of babe but it's like secretly about the iraq war or something like that right like right mm-hmm. yeah. i i did want to make one other note historically that's more specific to the series of books that this marks the first book uh in the friday the pig series um, in uh, a sequence that will continue until the end of the series in which Walter R. Brooks wrote one book a year. Oh, interesting. So from Ooh. this one until the end, there's only one year gap between each of the books. Ooh, okay. Not so. to, uh, you know, read too much into that, but almost starts to feel like this is his, like, bread and butter like it's a it's a guaranteed right. income if he pushes out one of these every year he gets mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep yeah it's like walt disney in the 90s with animated movies <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, exactly. we finally figured out what works and so now we can just make one just every do year. it just, right yeah till we invent cgi we've hit the formula Yep. And CGI, and we can crank out as much crap as we want. <laughs> <laughs> and the, these kids will eat it up like the little dung beetles they are. <laughs> I, I, I want, I want to see Mickey Mouse saying that in a room, in an executive board room. <laughs> Surrounded by tons of people in suits that are nodding in agreement. Smoking <laughs> cigars. Yeah. <laughs> the little duck beetles that they are. 
I feel like we're on the cusp of a new podcast, and it's not this one, but it's a great concept. Well, it's your fault, Ethan. <laughs> you got us going with your, with your, you know. I'll I'll tell you what in those in those few minutes that you went off on your nostalgia, that explained more to me about you than, you know. At least, at least months of friendship early on. We'll, we'll see that. <laughs> okay, yeah, I was good. I, I thought you were gonna draw it to like our entire friendship, and I was our like, entire... I feel no, like no, no, I feel like at some not, point not you would deep. already have figured this out. But yeah, that makes that makes sense. Yeah. That works for me. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Can Can I ask you guys about the book you read? Did you get the edition that has a new foreword by uh, Nicholas Kristoff? I don't think published. So. No. It's the I think well, the most see, recent printing of the book. I got the ebook and so I did not get that. Okay. My edition does well, not have a foreword. Then I need to share this because would you like to guess what year this edition was published in with this foreword by Nicholas Kristoff, who is a uh, writer in the New York Times, columnist in the New York Times. I'm going to say either 1992 or 2000. 2016. Uh, oh, 2016 edition. This is a 2016. Wow. Now that uh, so this book, Freddy the Politician, was published in 2016. Um, I suppose that would make sense. That that would be the year that they would, you know, mm -hmm. make another re-release of that. It it does it does make a good deal of sense. And his forward is just two pages. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to. He he does this cute thing. Nicholas Kristoff does. Um, just, I'm just going to read the, the first paragraph and a half, I think. Um, and then we, I want to discuss a little bit of what he says. So, all right. He says, many Americans despair at our political dysfunction and would like to see a new kind of politician emerge in the public eye. And what newer kind of politician could there possibly be than Freddie the pig? <laughs> As a New York Times columnist... I'm not supposed to endorse any candidates, but psst, don't tell my editors. I'm ready to endorse Freddy. That's the first paragraph and a half of uh, his uh, his forward here. He, he's being very cute. Um, so, but his whole point here is that in the political landscape of 2016, uh, we need to look more towards politicians like Freddie. And he's he's gonna be our saving grace. He he's the ideal that we can we can live up to, uh, is Freddie. And do you agree with that? I mean I don't know. I guess I like Freddie a lot more than I like most specific politicians I can think of. Fair. Not to name any names. Not to name any names. Yeah. I... I think he's saying too much. I, I think... I, I don't want to read too much into the forward. I think more than anything, the forward is just cute. Um, mm. uh, so I, I don't think Freddie is meant to be an ideal politician. Um, especially the... the title itself freddie the politician is not the original title so it's not the point of freddie being the politician um but i don't think he's quite as um 
marvelous as uh, Nicholas Kristoff is making him out to be. Again, I don't want to read too much into it. Although he does, I mean, throughout the course of this book, he does have attributes that are admirable yes. within the typical citizen. And sure. the thing the thing that struck me about this book was, it's called Freddy the Politician. Mm-hmm. However, I mean, he's not the one that ends up running for president, which right. is a little bit surprising, considering that mm-hmm. he's the title one here. However, you know, if you read the original right. with the original title. Um, but... He's not the main person running for president, and in fact, throughout most of the book, well, throughout well, the first half of the book, then he shuns responsibility for anything. Like the bank, when he's involved with the bank, then mm-hmm. he's just there. He's proud to, you know, have it and have his name on it, but doesn't want to do anything further with it until he notices people doing things without his say. Um, and, and... Over the course of the book, he gains this sense of responsibility, not just a, I want to be in the room where it happens, sure. um, but but a sense of I want to see to it that I am there to make sure that things are run correctly. Um, mm-hmm. And you also you also do have one of the themes throughout the book is the value of laughter. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love that all over the place, and one of the things that frustrated the woodpecker side of things was whenever somebody laughed mm. at sure. you know at at anything within within their spectrum of things. The very idea that somebody could you know be in any way subversive, mm-hmm. um, and and Freddie employs that from time to time. Um, he you know. Whenever, whenever something didn't quite go his way, and he knew that he couldn't win, at very least he would leave the room laughing, yeah, and mm-hmm. and doing that sort of a thing. And so, in in a certain respect, there are things that are admirable about him. To say, you know, there is there is something to his character that is to be liked. I mean, sure. if I'm trying to think of it in like a as non-flippant a way uh, as possible. Um, I guess, like, I go back to Friday the Detective and the fact that it's kind of a pastiche of, like, a Sherlock Holmes, and it's like, Mm. would you want Sherlock Holmes as your president? Um, (laughs) Or even as a politician. And, and, like, the more you know about the character you know the the conan doyle sherlock holmes that the the character that he exhibits and the more the answer is probably no just sort of right. on, a, on a flat playing field um but would you want him on your side politically probably mm-hmm. the answer to that is yes and you know it, it uh again not to make too much of like the 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 title difference the original title or whatever but it's like maybe there's um, more intentionality behind Wiggins for president versus Freddie the politician um, than we might initially think. Like hmm. maybe Freddie is the you know is the political operator mm-hmm. who, sort of like a cowboy in an old cowboy movie, like isn't the person you want in political office, but is the person you want sort of uh, enforcing the political order behind the scenes. Hmm. 
the maybe, one who will get their hands dirty to make sure that the right outcome comes. Yeah. Maybe maybe that's my my bigger issue if I really have one with the the forward in general is that it it makes too much of Freddy as politician and not enough of Freddy as a character who is supporting other politicians because really yeah. I don't think he is much of a polit he is some but it's he, him as politician is is really below all, all the other plot that's going on in the book well and you know this may be sort of an older definition of politician like mm -hmm. these days you know we have politician is a very specific uh sort of noun to use and it often kind of kind of has a, a very potentially problematic you know um uh coexistence with like what you think of as a hero whereas like you know closer to when this book was written than to now you have sort of you know to to use a wild example like the tammany hall politicians of the of the irish section of new york in the 1880s like that's an example of what in the 1930s you might have thought of as a politician not someone who runs for office but someone who like gets stuff done mm -hmm. and if if we sort of you know take the use of the term politician that way like it does make freddy into a much more potentially i i don't want to I, I don't necessarily want to say problematic but certainly like ambiguous character um mm -hmm. you know politician not as savior but as like somewhat like like operative um yeah yeah i get that i actually like that word for freddy that he is an operative yeah yeah, yeah. uh which again is like <laughs> if 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 we were if if uh, a book in 2022 came out called freddy the politician is like deeply not what you would expect the hero mm -hmm. of this like young adult novel to be mm -hmm. well and i mean the other thing is too within this book you have the two main plots going on you have the plot of the bank and the plot of the republic right mm -hmm. and and within the plot of the bank there's actually plenty of room to talk about freddy's politics there um, Politicking he has even. a, he, yeah, he's he has a lot more like, I don't know, discovery of the politics that go on with that bank thing, as well as you know learning from those politics and saying, okay, if you guys are gonna play dirty, I will play dirty too, right? And mm -hmm. doing that sort of a thing, um, and of mm -hmm. course at the end of the book, Freddie claiming his spot in or as a figure in the bank and everything like that. Right. Um mm -hmm. and so while while he's not while he's not after the highest office in the land or anything like that, then within that sphere of things then he is, you know, decently active and decently a part of the politics. Right. Right. Uh that said, Josiah, do you want to uh summarize the, the plot for All right. And the road grows steep and long A treadmill round where no peace is found If one follows it over long 
And however they wander, both pigs and men are always glad to get home again. Now that we've analyzed the heck out of this book without giving you any context, um, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in any case, this book starts out with the animals, um, kind of a little bit down in the dumps about the fact that Mr. Bean would really like to go on vacation to Europe with his wife, mm -hmm. but he doesn't quite feel like he can leave the animals by themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, these animals are smart, smart animals, and Mr. Bean knows this. In fact, he has a great quote toward the beginning of things where he, where he lets the animals know that he knows that they're capable animals, but they can't quite do things for themselves on a level that he feels comfortable. Um, so, um, you open on the storm that, you know, has loosened a couple of things around the house and everything. Mr. Bean goes out to inspect things, and he comes back um, to or into the house to see the dogs sitting around not doing anything, Jinx sitting around not doing anything. Um, and Mr. Bean says to the animals... I suppose you animals would let that blind bang, the blind that, you know, he went to fix, bang itself to pieces before you get up and fasten it. I go round telling all and sundry that my animals are the smartest animals in New York State, but I don't know. Seems to me if you were, if you was so all fired smart, you'd fix a little thing like that yourselves without waiting for me uh, to do it. My gracious, if I can't count on you to see to a little thing like that, how could I go off to Europe all summer like Mrs. Bean wants me to and leave you in charge of the farm? No, no, taint to be thought of. And he stumped off upstairs again. And so you have Mr. Bean saying to the animals, you guys are super smart and you've proven yourselves over and over again, but I don't know that I could trust you to, you know, take mm -hmm. care of things. And the animals, that it gets under their skin a little bit, and they, are, and they think to themselves, to themselves, how could we prove ourselves to Mr. Bean? And they come up with two different ideas. They come up with the idea of, why don't we initiate our own government? And why don't we start our own bank? These are two ventures that if we get them going and show Mr. Bean that we're able to run them effectively, then he'll be able to feel good about things and he can go to Europe with his wife and do that whole thing. Right around the time that they're coming up with these ideas, a guest shows up. Um, mm -hmm. His name is John Quincy. He's a woodpecker, and he is named for the president, John Quincy, because he and his family live on the White House lawn. And um, they are a family that's been established for years on that White House lawn, and each woodpecker in the family is named after a different president. And so having lived in Washington, the animals are very intrigued at his knowledge and his experience in various capacities, and John Quincy is more than happy to jump on board to help out with different things. Um, he ends up becoming president of this bank that they end up opening. Um, mm -hmm. They open this bank, John Quincy is on board, um, Freddie ends up serving as, I think, secretary. Let me, let me look at that really quick. Um, yeah, John Quincy is president, um, Jinx is the secretary, Jinx the cat secretary, and Freddy or is the treasurer, and Freddy is the secretary. And um and 
Um, so they open up this bank. A number of animals bring stuff for them to keep in these banks, um, which they do have their own their own safe houses mm. and stuff like that, um, dug out by the animals and also by a fox named John. Later on, he digs um, extra um, extra room for keeping various valuables and items and things. And animals are bringing stuff, and you know it's a quaint little thing. The animals bring the various coins that they have or the various monies they have and everything like that. One day, Mr. Bean discovers this bank. He's a little curious. He walks in, talks with the animals, and that's an interesting thing that we'll get back to. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, he talks over with them, their bank thing. There's a horse from a neighbor's barn that's trying to get a loan from the bank, and he has no capital, and he has no one that's willing to sign on with him to make this loan come through. Mr. Bean's standing right there, and he's like, you know what? Sure, I'll go in on this loan with you. And it seems like you guys are doing a pretty good job running this bank. I ought to open an account. And so he puts $100 in the account. It's great. He goes over to the bank at Centerboro and um, and tells them, well, you guys have some competition. Kind of jokingly a <laughs> mm-hmm. little bit, but at the same time with a little bit of pride. His animals opened a bank and it looks like it's running effectively. The, the um, banker over at the uh, bank in Centerboro isn't impressed at first, but then when he tells him that they have, I don't know, some sum between $100 and $200. Um, $179.42. Which, yeah, and so a majority of it is Mr. Bean's money. Yeah. <laughs> but the guy, but the guy, but the guy, the guy, or, but the banker is like, oh, they're actually running a real bank. That's not cool. We, we, <laughs> We can't have that. We can't have this type of competition and everything. And Mr. Bean's like, but they're my animals and they can, so they should be able to do it. And eventually, throughout the course of the argument, Mr. Bean withdraws all his money, which is some $4,000 to $5,000. There it is. Puts it in the animal Oh, no, bank. no, no, no. That's, that's, the, that's what winds up being the total. His, what he withdraws is $4,845.90. Yeah. After, after he and a squirrel puts in five cents, then that's the total. Yeah. Um, which, which, again, that's one of my favorite. Or that's another <laughs> so quote of, that I really love. Because can we just talk for a moment? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little bit of a sidebar and say, they employ math throughout the course of this book uh-huh. multiple times, and uh-huh. it's funny every single time. It's hilarious. <laughs> they make yes, but, Walter Brooks makes math funny. Yes, he sure does. Well, great. Got a text. Um, <laughs> let's see. So let me see. Um, so in any case, the bank is doing really, really well, oh. and um, things are looking pretty good. As the bank is doing better than. John Quincy starts seeing a lot of potential with this bank, and he's like, "Well, first of all, he starts to bother. He starts bothering Freddie a lot more about making sure that he's doing stuff with this bank because Freddie's content to have his name on the thing and not do anything with it." Whatsoever. I love the, the, the emphasis on Freddie's character in this book and just how <laughs> lazy he is. That, yeah. Like that really comes out. Like there's been some well, of it in the previous books, but like it, yeah, it really just like. He, he acts when, when he's absolutely required to. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And not only lazy, but also easily distracted <laughs> and very, very open to distraction. If there's anything that comes along that gives him 
paused for hardship or fear or anything like that. He's like, oh, I'll just move on to this other thing. You have this whole chapter about riding the bike that, you know, Charles notices that he's not up to anything and says, well, why don't you ride that bike that you've always wanted to ride? And Franny's like, sure. Yeah. And then when he gets, when when he's about to try it, he's like, but you know what? I have this other thing to do. And so on <laughs> yes. and so forth. And actually throughout the course of that chapter, that's where, um, that's where, uh, uh Bertram, Bertram is the name mm-hmm. of the, of the clockwork. Yeah. Um, yep. So Bertram gets damaged by Charles throughout the course of, you know, trying to get things done because he figures, you know, if I hop into this thing, then maybe I can give Freddy a little bit of what for. And, can, you know, can, he breaks the thing. Um, can we, can we, can we note on that, that point that, so we've got Bertram, who's the clockwork, clockwork twin, um, of Adoniram from the previous yeah. book. And yeah, who so... has his, his brother Byram. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also like, so the beans have them and they also have Ella and Everett from books who, previous. Who never right. get brought up. They're like, not ever. here at all. Yeah. They're gone. Yeah. Where'd they go? <laughs> yeah. And that's actually, I think I remember seeing that in a forum once about people, you know, being a little bit outraged at the fact that these kids from the second book just disappeared. They're gone. <laughs> They're, They're gone. Yeah. Yep. And like, I they was emotionally up... invested in them. They were sent gone. off the. They were sent off to school at one point, and I think that's the last we had heard of them. That they, they had been sent there. off to school, and they just stayed there. The beans sent those kids to boarding school and never brought them home. Never. But, but Adoniram and um, and Byram. what's his and Byram, they can stay home. They can stay home on the farm. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um. So, in any case, um, John Quincy, who's been getting on Freddy about taking up responsibility and everything, says, you know what, why don't I go down to Washington, and why don't I bring a little bit more family up here? I'll bring my father, who can be a little bit more of an expert and bring a little bit more professionalism to this, and we'll see what happens with that. He brings his father, Grover, up, Mm -hmm. as well as his son, X, and he's named X because he doesn't have a name yet. They have to wait around for the next president to be elected because <laughs> they they've used up all the names in their family. What's what's um, funny? What's funny though is the next president to be elected is FDR again. And then yeah. again. <laughs> <laughs> actually that is that is actually quite an ironic thing to think about. That, <laughs> that kid is gonna be waiting around for another term and another and then term. Another term. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. (laughs) But Grover gets up there, and right away, Grover Grover understands what could be done with, you know, all this stuff that's forming. And it becomes very apparent that the woodpeckers are starting to scheme a bit more about how they can get a good piece of the pie in all of this. Um, Right around this time is when they start announcing that they're going to hold an election for the first president of the first annual republic. And mm-hmm. the candidates that start coming forward as the as the main candidates are Mrs. Wiggins and Grover, the woodpecker. 
at the at the initial meeting in the barn where they where the first where the candidates come forward and give their speech and everything like that, um, Grover presents himself as somebody that's going to be able to carry everyone forward, and he is called out immediately by this crotchety owl. Um, uh, whoa, I just blanked out on the owl's name. Uh... Oh, wow. Shoot. Wow. If I was actually paging through my book while I was doing this, then maybe... I wouldn't find myself in such a blunder. Hmm. Uh, such a... Uh, I, sometimes I wonder why you even bring the thunder. Uh, why I even bring the thunder? <laughs> <laughs> that's two uh, Hamilton Wibbly, references. Wibbly. That's two Hamilton references so far this podcast. I think that's yep. getting to be a little excessive. I mean, for um, the time period we're in, if this was seven years ago, it'd be perfect. It's, it's yeah, yeah. Quib- we're really showing that we're really past the times. Yep. Um, but, the owl's yeah. name is Whibley. Yes, thank you very much. So Whibley or Whibley or yeah, yeah. So uh, he automatically calls out Grover for being a big old windbag that's full of a bunch of talk and not actually having any substance to what he's saying. And Grover hates it. Grover. <laughs> Grover is so agitated and starts being very threatening toward Wibbly and um, and tries to call him to account for his words several times throughout the rest of the book mm-hmm. and each time just gets batted back because the owl just overpowers whatever gets sent his way. He's like my favorite character in the book. 100%. <laughs> Wibbly is a rock star. He is. <laughs> Yes. Just over and over again, he calls out Grover and the woodpeckers for their crap, and they try time and time again to take care of that issue, and they just can't. Nope. And he keeps being, you know, being absolutely sassy to them the whole time, and yeah. overpowering them and everything. It's great. It's great. Um, it's great. But in any case, you have these two main candidates. You have... um. You have Grover and you have Wiggins, and the the campaign is getting stricter and stricter. And as this is going on, Freddie is getting edged out of the bank more and more. The woodpeckers are taking are taking over the bank more and more, and doing it in very very you know dirty tactics sort of ways, ways by like saying, "Hey, we're gonna vote to have the meeting over in this room that Freddie can't fit in," <laughs> and and. And by all the woodpeckers voting for it, they all, you know, end up back in that room and Freddy can't be in it. And so Freddy actually calls for a meeting at one point and and calls the meeting for happening at a specific time, is able to dig like a secret passageway mm-hmm. to this room, closes off the room, conducts the meeting and says, oh, guess what? I reconfigured the entire setup of this whole thing. Now I'm in charge of everything. So, you know. <laughs> so, like, the logistics of the scheme and counter scheme are just gorgeous. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh... And the, the, the campaign is fierce between Wiggins and, and Grover. And the thing is, there's at first this debate over who can vote. And we'll talk about that when we get to the one-liners for sure. Um, oh, yes. But it's a great conversation. Um, 
But they figure out exactly what animals can vote. And as soon as they do that, then certain things start happening. Um, the rats are becoming a lot more of a presence around the farm mm -hmm. and everything. And also there are a ton more birds showing up. A lot more birds from all over in the area are starting to show up. And Freddy is keeping close track on the numbers of those that have pledged themselves to Wiggins and those that are going to pledge themselves to Grover. And it's looking pretty close. Mm -hmm. Like, at times it looks like they might not be able to make it. And at, at a certain point, they figure that the swing vote in all of this is the chickens. If they can get the chickens to vote for Wiggins, then they'll probably be pretty good. And when they are at one point when um, when um, Freddy confronts Grover about something, I forget exactly what it is, but he manages to flip the vote of the chickens. And Henrietta is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, and so the vote gets flipped through the chickens, which is great, and it's looking like it's going to be pretty good. But then in the midst of all this, there's this rabbit named Marcus. Um, and he's been, he's been, you know, interested in this whole election thing. And after a meeting with some of the woodpeckers, decides, I think I should run. Mm -hmm. I think I should run for, um, for president as well, which is all legal and everything. And it's like, I don't know why this is happening, but the woodpeckers seem to want it. That's a little weird. Election day comes, and everybody casts their vote. They cast it on sheets of paper. They have a W for Wiggins, an M for Marcus, and a G for Grover. You write the letter on the sheet of paper, put it in the box, and great. All the animals vote, and, um, and a committee of various animals, woodpeckers, Freddy... Uh, Wiggins, everybody starts counting out the votes and putting them into different stacks. And quickly they realize that there's a problem. Mm -hmm. M's and W's look pretty similar. And so, and, and, and of course, you know, Freddy is like, well, obviously most of these are W's. And the woodpeckers are like, well, I don't know. These ones look pretty much like M's. And, and so, of course, of course, you see the scheme come to fruition. And within the confusion of all of this, then while they're trying to figure everything out, the woodpeckers seize the opportunity. They take control of um, Bertram, the clockwork boy, which, you know, if you get into that thing, then it's like a massive mech suit that you're able to, you know, <laughs> withstand anything. <laughs> Am I wrong? No, no you're not wrong. No, you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and and so and so Bad Grover is in the is. <laughs> Grover is in the mech suit and he also called upon you know these cranes to come in to enforce a, a number of things and to kind of be a little bit of his muscle as well and he basically says I'm the president and they are trying to subvert this entire election so this is how it's going I'm president now by legal right and you guys better not mess with me. And he mm -hmm. ushers in a pretty totalitarian existence for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, throughout this time, uh, Freddy gets taken captive, and a lot of animals are constrained to not being able to meet in various groups and things like that. And actions taken against the government can't be made. Um, 
there are those couple of encounters with Wibbly where they try to take him out and doesn't happen. Just right. can't. Um, can't he's, they're not able to do it. Um, they are able to set Freddy free through a scheme, and Freddy goes on the run. He hides out in Centerville for a little bit, and actually gets in contact with the banker at Centerville because one of the things that Freddy's been noticing is there's this weird guy wandering around the bank occasionally trying to, you know, figure stuff out with it. And when he goes to visit the banker, in disguise, mind you, because why not, um, he disguises himself as this woman and goes to the banker at Centerville and, um, and says, so here's the thing. Um... I can help you figure out this animal bank problem. And he's delighted to hear that this woman can help figure things out because this side detective guy hasn't been doing a thing for him. And so Freddy comes up with this idea by communication with wasps and so forth. He's able to set up a scheme that will allow, or that will first of all, allow for the bank um, to be, overrun and he promises um and he promises the banker that they will run an animal bank and a strictly animal bank and it won't compete with his business and everything like that Mm -hmm. um and there's this plot that caught or there's this plot to get grover in bertram over to the banker's house at centerboro with a fake invitation to a dinner or whatnot Mm -hmm. and they they invite him in and besiege the establishment and are able to take Grover out and um, are able to claim the farm back from the woodpeckers. Um, Grover flees and everything is better again. They instate Wiggins as president. And at the end of the book, when Freddie is back in control of the bank, then John Quincy even comes to him and says, I don't suppose we could just come on and humbly work for the bank, could we? And Freddy's like, nope. And that's it. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Kind of glossed over a couple of things toward the end there, but I've noticed that I have a tendency of being very verbose when it comes to the summary. So, uh, And if they want to know, they can the read book. it themselves. That's right. That's right. That's it podcast after podcast they've just been listening and they've been like we don't need to buy the book exactly. it just tells us everything that happens exactly <laughs> <laughs> oh good yeah so uh... so what are some things that you guys want to talk about within the plot anything that you know jogged your memory and made you think you know we should talk about this thing that happened i, I think it's one of the tighter plots that we've yeah. had so far, um, mm-hmm. which Tighter, we noted yeah. in earlier books that they they ramble around a little bit. This one well, seems and they're, to be more direct. In earlier books, they're much more episodic, where it's like yeah, sections of the mm-hmm. book, whether chapters or like multi-chapter sections, could just be their own short stories. Mm-hmm. Where this is much more like, you know, uh, the first chapter and the last chapter have a lot more to do with each other, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there are callbacks to previous books, Dis- despite the the missing children. Um, there are callbacks to like uh, book three with uh, the rats. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there has to and... be the rat. 
the rats wind up aligning with um with Grover because of course Grover when he's like you'll vote for us if we let you back on the farm and everything and they're like uh yeah yeah that's a, yeah mm-hmm. um i'm going to go ahead and bring us back to that scene where Mr. Bean talks to the animals yes because I don't know, have we formally had this yet, where Mr. Bean has a direct dialogue? We have had plenty of scenes where Mr. Bean talks at the animals, and I think there may have even been scenes where Mr. Bean overheard things that the animals were saying. Maybe that's accurate. But I don't know if we have had a dialogue. I, I don't I don't think so. We, we We've had the animals talk with just about everybody else. But Mr. Bean has not been in conversation with the animals, I think, until this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so so the scene where this happens is when Mr. Bean discovers this bank. He goes past the shed and sees the sign for the bank. And um, I'll just kind of read from that point. Um Hank looked around but didn't say anything. Mr. Bean knew that his animals could talk. Mm-hmm. But he was a pretty conventional man. That means he didn't like new things very much. He liked to have everything go on as it had when he was a boy. That was the reason he still drove a buggy instead of a car. And so it made him feel uncomfortable and a little embarrassed when he heard animals talk. He just couldn't get used to it. Yeah. It was a little confusing for the animals sometimes. Mr. Bean thought them impolite if they didn't answer, and on the other hand, it upset him if they did. But in this case, Hank decided that no answer was necessary. If Mr. Bean wanted to know what the bank was, he only had to read the sign. And, (laughs) um, And so he reads the sign, he goes in, and John Quincy greets him and says, Good morning, sir, he said. What can we do for you? Mr. Bean gave a slight shudder, as he always did when he heard an animal speak. (laughs) Who are you, he said. Stranger here, ain't you? And, you know, he goes into the conversation with why Quincy Adam, why John Quincy can't display his name on the sign because that's a U.S. president. You can't claim that a U.S. president is running this bank. (laughs) And, and, you know, has a little bit of a conversation with him about that. So I had... I had forgotten that that passage is in this book, and it does reinforce for me uh, the idea that I must have read this book at least one or two times, because mm. um, that pass unless it gets repeated in some of the other books, which mm. is possible, I which suppose. Which is possible. Um, but like that passage is one that sticks with me from my childhood reading of the books. Just the idea that like, you know, some some like. Uh, books about talking animals it's like oh this is separate from the human world and then some books it's like the animals can talk to each other but like humans can't understand or hear them which like some of the earlier books in this series kind of imply Mm -hmm. that but i specifically before we started this podcast series i specifically remembered a passage where it was like mr bean was somewhere in between those two in the sense that like Mm -hmm. he he you know could hear and understand the animals but he didn't like it like which i just the older i get the more hilarious that idea is like not that you're you're Mm -hmm. not like hot or cold but you're lukewarm 
and in this particular mm-hmm. sense like being lukewarm is so funny in the sense that it's like oh he was very con- conventional like these days we'd probably say like conservative with a small c like he didn't like the idea of you know animals talking but like he knew it was true like something about that is just so yeah. hilarious to me yeah mm-hmm. i mean it's the i mean it's that person if you're like in a production of a play or something that notices when set pieces move <laughs> or something and yeah. and i mean it's 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 a little bit of a different thing when it's like a this is an obvious fact that most people are recognizing and he's the one that's like no not not gonna Nope. Well, specifically, gonna, acknowledge it. Yeah, specifically <laughs> the fact that it yep. is true in the world of the story. Mm-hmm. Like, right. there's there's the yep. thing in a play where it's like someone dies in a play and then they're lying dead on stage, and then someone is you hear someone in the audience being like, "He's not dead. I see him breathing." But this is like, mm-hmm. this is different from that in the sense that it's like if someone in the play was like, "He's not dead." <laughs> yeah. Good. Yeah, that's definitely a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, one of my favorite bits, if we're doing uh, um, one-liners or anything you want to talk about, yeah, one-liners. Yeah, just comes towards the end. Uh, let's see figuring out the chapter chapter 17 at least in my edition um when grover replies to uh henry (laughs) weezer and it's just like it's like something out of finnegan's wake it's like something out of a james (laughs) joyce novel where walter r brooks as an author fully commits to the idea that freddie's typewriter is wonky and maybe Mm -hmm. um grover like grover also isn't fully like great at uh wielding the typewriter and then you get this thing where it's like you have to decode and it's not a super (laughs) hard code but like you do have to decode line by line like what is happening in this letter um it's a little bit like walter r brooks invented lead speak so again to like date us as white men in our 30s like you know, you think about Leet speak from like 2005 or whatever, Mr. Henry W33ZER, like that's very, you know, mm-hmm. is like a message Strong Bad would have uh, banged out. Um, <laughs> and, oh, for God. Exactly. Um, I don't know, something about that just delights me, like just something about it's almost as if Walter R. Brooks had a faulty typewriter and and just tried to bang this this message out in character and then put it into his book. I'm not saying he did that. I have obviously no idea, but, like, just something about that is just very delightful to me. Still one of my favorite moments in all of his books was back in Freginald when there's a message that Freddy sends that's Mm. so garbled and everything. And he's... And because certain letters are out... And Freginald is trying to make sense and he's being very careful about it and everything. And then the rabbit that delivered it is like, he said that if you couldn't read it, this is the message. <laughs> <laughs> like, like five or ten minutes after he wrestles over this yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Walter Brooks has yeah. some, some great craft. 
involved. Yeah. There. Speaking of his craft, one of the things that we talked about was his math. I'm gonna yes. try to. I'm gonna try to find the one where he was, where Freddie was counting up the different people for, um, yes. for either party. I so Mrs. Wiggins' party nine. was the farmer party, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the farmer's party was Mrs. Wiggins' party. The equality party was Grover's party, and eventually you have Marcus's party, which was what? the opportunity party. The opportunity party, right? So you have you have the list of the various numbers for the farmer's party being added up. You have three cows, two horses, two dogs, one cat, one pig, four mice, two ducks, 176 rabbits, uh, 11 <laughs> skunks, which, by the way, that's wonderful that they're filling yeah. rabbits. Um, one bear, one fox, 34 squirrels, 38 chickens that are listed as doubtful, mm-hmm. um, one... One owl, question mark. Mm-hmm. Um, and chipmunks, mixed animals, um, um, including field mice, 82. And then on the equality party side of things, you have um, seven woodpeckers, 21 rats, 18 robins, 42 sparrows, 135 mixed birds, and weasels and assorted small animals estimated about 65. Then he added these numbers up and it came out 287 the first time and 290 the second time for that <laughs> um, for that set of animals for the equality party. I skipped over the paragraph before where it had its totals for the for the, uh, farmer's, the farmer's party. party. It said that it came out to 346 the first time, then he added it up again and came to 365. Um, and it says Freddy wasn't very good at addition. <laughs> and so and so when you have that 365 and that 290, then it shows him doing the math. And it has 365 minus 290, and then it has the equals line, and it says 74. I don't know how he got that. How he got that four? It says. <laughs> so that's, that's all. I don't know how he got that four. Um, oh, I love it. And it's just, yeah, good yes. stuff. Uh, another bit mm-hmm. of uh, the craft that comes in is in uh, chapter 18, um, where it goes through the whole coup that uh, gets rid of Grover um, with the in the bank and everything and it has Mrs. Eliza Blench uh, with her diary entries oh um, that was so good <laughs> and it just lists everything <laughs> so so yeah tell tell the listener who this person is again um, she lived across the street from Mr. Henry Weezer um, the, the the banker banker, yep. um, and it says she always wrote down in her diary whatever she saw going on through her front parlor window curtains, and was kept pre- pretty busy that Friday. So, um, she she goes through all, all of uh, she, and it says she wrote so fast and furiously that by nine o'clock in the evening she ran out of ink and had to go upstairs and borrow some from her boarder, Mister Wilford Attleberry. But by the time she got back, everything was all over. Um, and so it, it starts at 8.30 a.m. Um, with just some... It starts with Mr. Weezer leaving and then some mundane things. Um, but then you, you get the impression uh, at 10.15, old lady in sunbonnet let herself in Weezer's front door with key. Query, new housekeeper? And, like, we know as the reader by this point, that's Freddy in a disguise. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
And then she notices a large swarm of wasps on the front porch, and they all fly in through the open window. Roosters come hopping in, and just, like, she's watching all of these animals just converge on the house. And 3.15, I think it's the longest entry. 3.15, I simply cannot understand this at all. An old white horse just came down the street, climbed up on Mr. Weezer's porch, and rang the front doorbell with his hoof, was admitted by a little old woman still wearing her sunbonnet. Before the door was closed, a cat and two dogs dashed around the house and in after the horse. What? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so she, like, we get the events from the outside just all listed in her diary. And and amidst that, the next entry after that, by the way, is yeah. at 4.25, and it says... Just back from Mr. Payne or from Dr. Payne's, he says my glasses don't need changing, says my eyes are all right. Didn't tell him about the horse. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I just love it. Which like it, horse, it's funny. Ju- horse just looked out of Ms. or of W's parlor window, saw me, and grinned and waved hoof at me. <laughs> uh, like part of what makes this funny though is you have to like think of it separate from this reality in which the animals talk to people and people talk to animals, and it seems to be pretty well established at least that these animals on the Beans Farm talk to people and they're really intelligent and so you would assume that this woman who lives in town would have contact with them you can you can maybe suspend some disbelief there um but still like it's it's so funny uh to see animals going wild but it it has to be kept distinct from this this in-world reality of animals talking to people it's interesting it's interesting um it's almost as if like whether animals and people can communicate moves directly at the speed of of plot or the speed of humor <laughs> yes definitely yeah it do- it doesn't ultimately matter whether they can talk to people or not you know right. just as long as it fits the story right right um so there there are a few parts of the book where we we've kind of traced some of how how dark it gets when you assume animals can talk and have consciousness um, and everything like with, with animals, uh, being predatory towards other animals and right. other things like that. Well, in this one, you get maybe a little bit of racism amongst animals. Uh, yeah. it's, well, oh, and, uh, and it's I un- mean, go I, ahead. I've, I've got a specific instance in chapter four, uh, on, uh, page 47, uh, in my copy, Freddie is talking to the fox, John. Um, and John says, I wouldn't take too much woodpecker advice if I were you. I don't trust those boys, and that's a fact. Don't ask me why. It's just a feeling. Don't you have those feelings? Why, now you mention it, said Freddy. I guess I do. Weasels now. I don't trust weasels, and yet I haven't any reason not to, really. I don't know much about them. They may be the kindest, nicest people in the world, but somehow... Yes, said John. That's how I feel about woodpeckers. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, well, and I mean, the whole narrative of the election being falsified by all of these outsiders coming in and Uh swinging the vote Uh and i mean that is that is such that's that's something that you hear at every election that you Mm -hmm. know these people are coming in and voting in you know and and all these illegitimate votes and everything like that and i mean the the fact that i mean this book handles that that bit of politics is kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. And it, yeah. it is. 
Uh, the other, the other um, like, maybe darker passage, but it's handled with some humor, uh, is, uh, what chapter? It's on page 207, chapter 15. Um, Freddy and Mrs. Wiggins are talking about Freddy's disguise, um, his, his costume where he's going to, to run in and hide, and Mrs. Wiggins says, uh, and it hides everything but the end of your nose, and yet it doesn't hide the most important fact about you. And what's that, said Freddy, tying his bonnet strings under his chin. That you're a pig, of course, said Jinx. Just take a word of advice, Freddy. Don't go into the butcher's house for tea while you're leading the gay life in Centerboro. <laughs> it's like, so, Jinx knows what happens to pigs in the butcher's shop. Right. He's like, Freddy, yeah, don't, don't go to the butcher's shop to, you know, while you're just, in town. Just, don't. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> and I love how the animals comment all the time on how terrible Freddy's disguises are. Yes. And people seem to fall people for fall it all for the it. time. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, one of the one of the small bits of John and it it was something that I almost expected for them to pay off in this book, mm. but I guess they're going to save for another time. Um John the Fox when you're introduced to him, it talks about how, you know, a number of people around the farm were a little bit anxious about a fox being so close to home, um, including the chickens, especially. Um, And it talks about how um, a committee consisting of Robert and Mrs. Wiggins had called on John and made him promise to leave the chickens alone. John promised readily enough, for he liked society, and there wasn't much of that up in the wild and lonely woods. And anyway, he didn't spe- he didn't specially care for chicken. What he really liked was duck, but he didn't tell the committee that. <laughs> and, and throughout, ever since I read that line, I was like, "Oh no! Oh no!" Emma, Emma. and uh, what's Emma. Emma's Alice? Shoot, Alice. Alice. Yeah, Emma and Alice, Alice are not are 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 in trouble. And I was like, <laughs> "That is gonna." That's gonna happen at some point, and it's not. And it didn't happen during this book. I would not be surprised if there's something that happens down Somewhere the line. Somewhere down the line, that he's uh, just you know laying the groundwork and just like, by the way, this guy really likes duck. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he didn't tell the committee that. But he didn't tell the committee. <laughs> That's great. So good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've got one of my favorite um, lines from Quibbly. Um, Oh, uh, man, you could reason... read everything that Wibley says. <laughs> everything. Yeah, uh, you could. But yeah. it, It's shortly after the math that you cited in Chapter 9, um, where he's talking with Grover. Hmm, said old Quibbly, what I say? Said you're a stuffed shirt. Said you talked a lot of balderdash. True, too. Won't apologize for telling the truth. See here, Grover, you're smart. No coward either. Why not stop being a stuffed shirt? Stop talking balderdash. Then I could say Grover isn't a stuffed shirt. Grover doesn't talk balderdash, eh? That's the way to settle this. No insult, no duel. Fury, I'm making a speech myself. I demand satisfaction, croaked Grover. I will not be made fun of. You'll be made fun of if you're funny, said the owl. By others, if not by me. Can't fight every animal on the farm. Well, can't talk all day. All right, I apologize. You apologize, said Grover. Certainly. You are a stuffed shirt and you do talk balderdash, but I apologize for saying so. (laughs) (laughs) It goes on a little more, but that's, you know. That's an example of how great Whibley is. Mm-hmm. Well, and again, and again, the idea that the biggest insult to Grover and his 
or mm-hmm. and the woodpeckers is laughter. Yes. That that is the biggest insult to them. I mean, I mean, trying to challenge their power and everything, that's something that they expect and something that's like, yeah, yeah we're we're powerful and you don't like it and of course you're going to fight us fight against us on that. That's fine. We're still going to win, but laughing at them. Mm-hmm. That, you know. Yeah. Yep. That's that's what gets them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is interesting because like a lot of a lot of uh, people over the years who have fought fascist re- regimes or other like authoritarian regimes tend to use laughter as a weapon. Like there's sort of a, a well-known um, trope, I guess, that like authoritarianism cannot abide being laughed at. Like that's it's it's you know kryptonite mm-hmm. or whatever um mm-hmm. so again mm-hmm. really interesting about like what shows up in this children's book series regarding that yeah mm-hmm. yeah for sure well and you know it, it touches on some of the the real world things going on when the book was published too mm-hmm. um there's a a moment where um grover is uh remodeling the farm basically he kicks the chickens out to to turn it into barracks for soldiers um and henrietta says soldiers what are you going to do start a war um and i can like that's that's something that had to be um on the adults minds Mm -hmm. going on uh at the time this book was was written and published and so like it, it was certainly surrounding the the kids too. That, like, oh, I totally glossed over the military campaign that Grover, you know, right? starts. Yeah. So when Grover becomes president, then he says, "It's not enough that we have this animal republic just on this farm. We need to spread this republic across mm-hmm. the land." And so he starts doing military campaigns where he takes control of other farms and and you know commands them to you know join the far or you know mm-hmm. suffer the consequences and yeah yep, mm-hmm. yep. which like this it, is this is before hitler actually starts his march <laughs> yeah. yeah and and i mean the thing is and one of the reasons why they are able to get catch grover off guard a little bit is that he is so invested in this and right. that he is all about now just you know getting more and mm-hmm. doing that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Can we talk about bugs? Please. Talk about bugs. So mm-hmm. when they're trying to figure out this whole voting system, then of course the question becomes, well, who's able to vote? Yep. And and so they're sitting around talking about this, and um, Freddy says, and of course if he did get elected, Grover, we'd all get together and or no, not not him. He's actually not talking about Grover here. He's talking about Simon because they mm-hmm. say if any if anybody can put their name up for candidacy, Simon could do it. And of course, that's you know unquestionably terrible. Can't do um, that. But but Freddie says you know if he did get elected, we'd overthrow him. But that's revolution, and we don't want a revolution on this farm. How about bugs? Asked Hank, the old white horse. <laughs> like, I mean, we're on this very serious note, and Hank's like, how about bugs? Seems to me if you're going to be so fair to rats, 
You ought to be fair to bugs, too. Ain't a bug got any rights on this farm? <laughs> it's kind of funny to hear you standing up for bugs, Hank, said Mrs. Wiggins, remembering how you pestered the, li the life out of Mr. Bean until he, br or until he bought some fly poison for the barn so you could take naps in the afternoon. <laughs> Flies ain't bugs, are they? said Hank. <laughs> they're, they're pests. Still, I don't know. Maybe you're right. You gotta draw the line somewhere. We can't give bugs the vote, said Robert. Ants and beetles and butterflies and why, there's millions of them. It wouldn't, or it would take five years to count the votes. Yes, and, so, and suppose they'll all stuck together and voted alike, said Emma. Dear me, suppose we had one of those dreadful centipedes for president. That's so, said Freddy. Bugs are out. And, <laughs> and, they, and they have this whole thing, and then it occurs to them, Wait, Mr. and Mrs. Webb are bugs. <laughs> and, and they have this whole thing with them where they talk it over with them, and he talks it over with Mrs. Webb, and they come back and say, it's okay if bugs don't have the vote. We we don't even, we don't need it. It's we fine. don't want it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. which, is, which is a nice, s simple solution for yeah. them uh, on this. Yeah, kind of in the uh -huh. way that... Uh... But, in the Hunger Games, Katniss is accused of, like, being absolved from solving moral dilemmas. Like, Mr. and Mrs. Webb kind of absolve our mm -hmm. heroes from actually solving the moral dilemma that they have set for mm -hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Like, great. it's an accusation I would actually lay in this book that is not necessarily fair for the Hunger Games. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, and... it, well, I, I think I think the the, the real um, interesting feature of it in this book is that it gets brought up at all. Right, mm -hmm. it's really fascinating, well, it gets... and it's it's like interesting because it's such a historical, mm -hmm. you know, thing. Um, I'm just in my like extracurricular reading right now. I'm reading a, a history of sort of um, the height of the British Empire before the the apocalypse. Mm. So like late 1800s through 1914 in like the whole debate at the beginning of this book is whether like landed like or not landed but like tenant farmers get to vote um and you know people who don't own the their own land uh but do work the land and you know have an interest in the government do they get to vote and it's like the the like debate is basically about whether them voting will imbalance the 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 balance mm -hmm. of power for one political party or another like mm -hmm. it's very much it it becomes very quickly not about sort of objective morality or you know um sort of like the principles of the politics involved so much as like the practicalities of the politics involved who who you know who are when we enfranchise a certain population, who are they going to vote for? And whoever they're not going to vote for tends to oppose it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and this comes up in the history of the United States. Also, like, uh, you know, when when women got the vote, for example, or, you know, black folks got the vote, like, the, the oppositions to those parties of people again we're much less about the morality of like who deserves the vote sometimes it was disguised in that language but it was much more about who are these people going to vote for if we give them the vote and who whoever right. mm -hmm. didn't think they would get votes you know 
tended to try to block that uh happening and it happens now with like immigrants getting the vote like um you know whoever whatever political party now doesn't think that immigrants will vote for them tends to try to block immigrants from getting the vote or make fewer immigrants mm -hmm. get the vote like it's it's a it's a thing that resonates throughout political history certainly political history of like you know democracies and republics um in the mm. in the european and american tradition among others um and it's it's wild that it like comes up in so explicit a way again in this like mm -hmm. children's book series mm -hmm. right and so th this might be a little related here it's related a little in my brain sure Did, does the book ever tell us why, besides the fact that it was an idea of the woodpeckers, they needed to have a government? Uh, the the animal republic? Right. Isn't it the idea that I thought they wanted I thought that it was I thought that it was one of the ideas. So and maybe that yeah, I'm trying to remember. Granted it's been a little while since I've read the book, but sure. maybe 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 they come up with the idea of the bank. The bank, I think, they came up with without the woodpecker. But right. I think maybe you're right. Maybe the FAR, the whole idea of the Animal Republic, was well. If you're going to have a bank, you should have government. Yeah, I think um, that's. I think maybe, that's how it happened. It was the woodpecker's yeah. idea to start the the republic after they came and took over the bank that the bean animals mm -hmm. already created. So, like, um, mm -hmm. it, ultimately, they could have. Um, solved a lot of headache and, and gotten rid of half of a book if they just said, you know what, this whole Republic idea, it, scrap it. It's not worth it. <laughs> like, no power then for the, um, the, the woodpeckers. They, they don't have a chance to take over because there's nothing to take over. Um, but I, I think that that itself is connected with this whole idea of government because once the, the idea is planted, the government is it exists as the idea amongst all of the animals because then for them to sit, just say, you know what, this Republic thing, we're not actually doing it anymore. Um, you'd have to convince the whole farm of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. I'm, deep deep thoughts looking... <laughs> in this children's book. Right. I'm trying to look through this chapter and see if he, if, he, if John Quincy is actually the one that suggests the FAR, um, the idea of a government, or if it came from the animals. Uh, I'm not sure. I guess I don't know for certain. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to read through the first couple chapters again. Uh. Mm. Oh, yeah, in the first two pages, you have a beautiful example of personification. Um... Mm. His language about the wind, you know, uh, pulling at the house and trying out the doors and everything like oh, that. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was such a cool passage. It was like, oh, mm -hmm. this is fun. If I were an English teacher that taught, you know, these types of, you know, elements of literature and everything like that, then I would have this on a poster yeah. because it's such That's a, a beautiful one. example of personification. Um, the The passage goes... It was a raw, blustery March night, and the wind kept going round and round the house, trying the doors and rattling the windows to make sure that everything was locked up tight. 
It would rush away across the fields and everything would be quiet for a while. Then pretty soon it would come rushing back as if it had forgotten something and would rattle the doors and windows all over again. After a while, it found a loose shutter on the front parlor window and began banging it. It banged it and shook it and rattled it and tried to pull it off it, off the hinges. And that seemed to excite the wind. It began to play with the house as a cat does with a ball. It would go way off and be very quiet for a while, creeping up slowly on the house. And then suddenly it would leap on it and shake it. Or it would go high up in the starlit sky and drop on the house with a bang. Mm-hmm. Just so great. Very good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. It's it's another one that starts off with Jinx. I, I want to, I, I, like, I, I think a majority of the books so far have started with Jinx. He's Maybe a good character to start with. He absolutely he is. is. So I, I, I want to keep track of that a little more and see how, if it starts with Jinx or not. <laughs> mm-hmm. Every book. Every book. And if it doesn't start with Jinx, why? <laughs> right. And see if, if that has something to bear on whether the book's a good one or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think we talked this book pretty well. Anything else you guys wanted to add? I'm good. Not particularly. All right. Here's a ride. Okay. Well, gentlemen, what's our next book? Freddy's Cousin Weedley. Oh, you already have it, you son of a gun. He already has it. He already has it. Well, I'm going to be getting the e-book because I'm cheap like that. (laughs) And I don't have shelves at home to put the books on. I do have shelves, but they're all filled. Um... Get so more mine. shelves. Stop me. <laughs> yeah. Look, Fine. wait. Uh, can you see? Um, yeah. Look at this. <laughs> look at this noise. Oh, that's not having shelves has not field. stopped me. Uh, here's some more. Wait, oh man. Where are we at? Uh, yeah. For, see. For for those for those listening to this that are blind, <laughs> he is showing us all the books that are on the floor. Stacks. And it's stacks a book minefield on Ethan's floors. Yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. yep. Anyway, now that I have thoroughly okay, shamed Josiah, but, but <laughs> Freddy's cousin Weebly. Freddy's cousin Weedly. Weedly, not Weebly. Weedly. 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 Yes. All right. A weird name. So not someone we who meet likes some of Freddy's family. That's great. I guess. Yeah. Mm. I have the mm. book, but have not read it yet. So nice. Okay. Well, if there's nothing else, then I guess we will see you next time. Well, we no, we won't. We will not see you next time. We won't. We... We're not watching you. Shut up. No. All right. In any case, in any case, um, thank you for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.